you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Kevin Dixie, KD, The Real NOC. How are you, sir? I'm good, man. How are you? I am outstandingly tired, but outstanding. Mike, how are you? What's happening, man? I'm good. I'm, I'm excited for Kevin's appearance on this show. I am uh, we seem to talk about you almost every show because either the guest brings you up or we bring you up. So yeah. it's good to have you on the show. It's true. Oh, man, it's good to be here. I get, I should be humble by that. I'm not sure what you guys are saying about me, though. I don't get to listen. All no, time. it's good. It's all positive. Well, it's, <laughs> I believe Mike. By the time, by the time we're recording this, the episodes uh, will not have been, or at the time of recording, the episodes have not been posted. So you would not have heard what we said. But um, by the time it goes up, everyone will have heard what was said about you. And it is all positive. You are a... Uh, a leader in the community and that's why we hang close to you is because you have a great deal of influence and not just because you're a, a famous influencer but because what comes out of your mouth really affects people and I think um, you you have an organization called Aiming for the Truth which we'll get to in a minute but you speak truth and in my experience truth resonates with people and it evokes a a very visceral response that I don't think people can hide from once they realize it because they know it to be true and they can't get away from it. So you can either deny it and keep living a lie or you can wrap your arms around it and move forward. And I think you do so much of that truth speaking through your, through your social media posts and your classes, uh, and, and your, and just your talks that you give. Um, it's, I think it draws people to you. It's a, it's, it's a gravitating feature and, um, we, we just need more of that in society, but, uh, we need it on the podcast too. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody in case they don't know who you are? Because we got clinicians listening to this who don't know anything about guns, and um, they should know who you who you are and what you do. Well, first of all, thank you for the the kind words, sir. I do appreciate it. I really do. Um, I am. My name is Kevin Dixie. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Born and raised. Uh, recently, just left the city. I'm not even two months ago, really. Um, so I am a, a product of that environment. I'm from the inner city of St. Louis. So you think about bad and I lived it. Um, I developed to be, I spent 10 years with the St. Louis city police department. I developed to be a firearms instructor. I also, since the age of 15, 16 have been kind of this, I don't know, you might say want to be in the beginning, but kind of this want to be activist, if you will, just trying to figure out how me and my peers in our community could be better because I didn't believe that's what life was. I wanted to do better. So I would rally people. I would ask them to pay attention to different political moves. Um, let's start looking at why we're so angry. Let's start looking at, you know, our families. How can we support each other instead of fighting each other? Um, and at the same time, having to be still a product of the environment, knowing, you know, how to abide by street rules and, and get along and things like that. Um, and I've graduated from that to Two parents who neither one made it past eighth grade, and I'm, I'm proud to look back and see a graduate degree hanging on the wall. And uh, from a no dad to a wife and two wonderful kids, and 
you know, uh, really, really saw what happens when you, when you work hard, push forward, even through some of the mental challenges to get yourself. So now I'm just a guy, like I'm just a regular guy, man, that um, wants everybody to be better. And because I've lived a lie, that's why I can tell the truth. And I just, I'm just aspiring to help people. Just a regular guy that was on the cover of Time Magazine. I'm, well, you know, it was 244 other people on there now. Well, they did put me in the middle of it, though. You know, I, gotta get that right. like, I was right in the middle. No, but uh, I'm just, I, I think, man, what, what keeps me grounded and keeps me humble is, to be totally honest with you, I was supposed to be dead a long time ago. Let's just being honest. I mean, if you look at the, the success rate of not being in prison or dead in environments where I come from, uh, and this is before we had the age of social media where there was, you know, you can reach out and maybe get somebody coming through a phone giving you influence, or you can, you know, hop online and listen to a motivational speaker, and you had all the access to this other information about this whole big world that was out there. Uh, but when you're trapped in that little bubble, man, with no, you're cut off from information, you're cut off from good food, uh, you're cut off from prosperity, really, and all you have is chaos, havoc, violence, and, you know, still some good laughs, still some good fun, some great people, but none of them live too long. So uh, to me, you know, we used to always have a joke, and it was a real joke, like uh, whoever turns, um, um, whoever lives to be 21 has to buy everybody else still living their, their first drink, right? Like that's how you weren't guaranteed that. It's just, you weren't. So for me, I like, I just stay humble. I'm just, I know I get up and I, I speak from the heart. Um, I never write any of my speeches, anything I say, I never prep it. Um, I just speak from the heart. And when I look out at every everyday people, uh, even celebrities, like I work with a lot of celebrities and stuff like that, but I just look at everybody as a person. And I, and I, I think for me, I'm humbled that people will listen to me. Um, leaders themselves, grown men, people with families and women that run businesses and their own families will actually sit down and listen to me. Like a kid that was, you know, from the slums is supposed to be dead by the time he's 21, at least in prison. And now I got, you know, leaders in their own rights actually sitting down taking my advice. So I'm just, I'm just I'm humble. Like just every day it's just humility. Is I it, eat it every day for breakfast. Is, it, is that challenging? Humility? Not for me. It isn't. Um, I think, you know, now there are certain times you got to puff your chest out now, you know, like if I have somebody who is, you know, maybe has a platform or is trying to challenge my status quo, like I did the other day, a guy was trying to, you know, challenge my commitment to the second amendment because I had a, a disagreement, a, a slight, small disagreement about the recent incidents in Kenosha. And he goes on this rant and it's like this guy that's like this political, whatever. And he goes on this kind of rant about, you know, what have you done for the second amendment? And then I did, I kind of put humility to the side. I said, let's play a game. Let's play the game of Google, Google yourself and then Google me and let's see who's done what. And he didn't respond to my post. He didn't respond to it. So, no, that's an interesting thing, though. I real quick because I have that that thing too, and I'm somebody who you you know now that I've sold Eagle, but I I armed sixty to eighty thousand Americans a year. Like that was my job. Mm-hmm. And and when people question my dedication to the Second Amendment or they say I'm for restriction, I'm like. <laughs> I are more Americans than most of you talking to me. Like I can't even have this conversation with most people, you know what I mean? But I, so I feel what you're saying completely. Like, <laughs> yeah, even when you know, I remember the, when we were up in DC and you kind of, you know, you got the attack, man. And it was, I, I don't know. I think for a lot of people, no matter what they love or what they're passionate about, sometimes they allow their, their drive and their passion, their love for a thing to blind them to sensibility. 
and to blind them to, you know, productive conversation. And sometimes you are using the gun or the second amendment as a great conduit or catalyst, if you will, to have and drive that conversation. They're just so, maybe it's because they're so used to being attacked, right? And they're just mm-hmm. on a defensive and they don't want anybody saying anything that's not staunchly in line with what they believe. But, you know, we have to still be human beings. We have to be able to have a conversation about stuff. So I even hate that you went through that. I actually told uh, a guy that recently, uh, who was when I, I made a comment on um, uh, WTTA and he inboxed me, he's like, hey, um, uh, they're about, um, um, you know, dealing with the mind, which is all right. But what does that have to do with gun ownership? And I use what you had said before, like, well, well, one of the guys um, has probably seen and sold more guns than we'll ever own in our life. So, I mean, there's that, you know, and I say the other guy is making sure, you know, before we can get to the board is making sure that the, there is a bridge linked between professionals and the second amendment. So maybe we can drive these suicide numbers down. So a people could be alive and maybe B we can have people stop using suicides against the argument. We can actually turn that attention and help people lives. So guns can actually in a way start keeping people alive because the gun industry has brought WTTA to the forefront. Um, and he said, thanks. Yeah. Well, I appreciate <laughs> so, I appreciate you being out there to, uh, to kind of at least explain the message in a way, but yeah, DC is something that really kind of knocked me off my feet because it, this is the first time that I've ever gotten any pushback publicly speaking. Right. And you would have thought all the all the time that I've spoke in front of mental health crowds, you'd have thought it would have come from there. Um, I was not ready for that to, to have a person heckle me or talk to me while I was delivering a speech in front of 3000 people. Um, and it kind of took away from the moment, but you know, it's okay. It was just a, a, a learning lesson. You know, it's like, I, it, we make this joke, right? We've had this joke. You, you're the one that said it. Like, if you really want to win over this crowd, all you have to do is go up there and go, uh, Demorats, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cards, and uh, Trump is God. And, and you'll just have a whole crowd just get behind you on that stuff. And, and, you know, part of that joke, it, it's kind of a reality, right? Like if you try to go any off the script a little bit and you don't just go up there and be like, be ready to die for this prior from a cold dead hands. Um, sometimes people, not everybody, the majority of people are good and they listen, but sometimes they go off on, you know, wherever they're going with their mind. <laughs> so I don't know. That's a good segue. This is, about, this is not about me though. This is about you. So <laughs> it's a good segue though. Cause I, I want to know like, Kevin, as you're like working through your, uh, your process of, you know, bringing your message to people, um, I do see some of the, I don't even know if I call them trolls. Some of them are trolls are purposely just there to get under your skin, but other people are legitimately concerned that any sort of balance whatsoever means an immediate jump to the other side, whatever the other side is. And I see that not just on your post, but on a, on a bunch of other posts too. So how do you handle that when you're trying to bring, uh, I guess, illumination to an issue, mental health, mental illness, suicidal ideation, suicide completion, that has just been stuffed into the corner for so long without offending the people you're trying to reach. You know, to be honest with you, I just don't worry about their feelings. Normally when I'm, when I'm speaking about the two crossing, I am doing it from a place of, you know, personal experience. And so it's me sharing my story and I'm worried about the individuals out there that are having the same struggles Uh, So when people troll, you know, uh, when you get those people that kind of get out there, trolls are going to be trolls. You know, you don't don't feed the trolls. We all know what happens when you do that. And then when you get the individuals that are to your point that are like, hey, you know, like, what does this really have to do? Why are you 
why are you doing this? And I always will tell them, like, if you look at what, you know, a death by firearms, roughly two thirds of suicide. And first of all, our job is uh, our job or responsibility, you know, whatever word you want to apply to it to feel comfortable. When we talk about Second Amendment, you know, people always say, you know, we are the, the, the purest of the country. We are constitutionalists. We want the best. We want people to be OK. Uh, on society as a polite society. And I said, okay, so with great power comes great responsibility. And if you see something going on in your fellow man that makes them weak, then it is your responsibility as the pillars of society to help them be strong. And at the same time, um, you can eliminate some of the conversation around guns. So, you know, I, I, I tell people most of the time in private, it's like you can't, you can do both because what they're scared of is if we get an advocate or somebody that's linked to guns like I am talking about, you know, mental struggles, then it immediately becomes an opportunity for anti-freedom types or anti-gun types to come in and say, aha, see, we got you. I'm like, but you can't, you can't be afraid to, to say the truth. So that's what I normally go with. And when I tell them my story, which I'm pretty sure you'll lead me into later, when I tell them that that story is kind of like, oh, well, now I get it. I say, yeah, but how many people are living in shame still that aren't brave enough to speak up? Watch. So you're actually suppressing the voice of people that need help, and that's that's not an okay thing to do. Yeah, I'm, well, I was going to have you tell your story, but now you're talking about suppressing voices of people that need help. <laughs> and I want to go that direction too, um, but we can come back to that. What is that story now that you teed it up? All right. So when it comes to because uh, you know uh, when it comes to mental health, when I was I am a to understand I am a kid, and I'll leave some of the gory details out, um, but I'm a kid that was born to a mother right when she turned 14. Um, I am, uh, you know, I didn't have a father, no close family, things of that nature. Um, I remember foster homes. You know, I was, uh, I was taken from her when she, when I was born by the state, not because she didn't fight for me. They just, she was just too young to really do anything. So while she was working, trying to get her life together to come get me back, I was tossed around in foster care. I remember in foster care in one particular household where things were the worst, where my mind really got kind of warped. Um, is there was a woman and her son and this woman would, uh, she was this, the nicest person when I first got dropped off. I was four or five years old and I vaguely remember, but I remember, you know, how they say you might, I might forget your name, but I'll never forget how you make me feel mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And she made, it's kind of nice. Uh, I thought I, I thought I was really at home and, you know, shortly thereafter it was cut my toenails, slice my apples and salt them perfectly and feed them to me with me and other children that are in the house. Now that was strange because we would get beat if we didn't do it just uh, properly. And then I was uh, dunked in tubs and tubs with uh, water and ice and whipped with extension cords at five years old. And the thing that really drove me over the edge was she had a son who was a grown man. Um, You know, he's 25 to 30 years old, but he was a grown man uh, that lived in a basement and there was me and one other little boy uh, that were foster kids in that home. And then there were several, several young ladies. So I remember being primed for molestation. Uh, he would, you know, be nice. And um, then all of a sudden it was come play in my room. And next thing you know, he's got us doing horrible things with Vaseline and doing things and making us watch him do things to us. That was just inhumane. So, with no one to talk to, of course, I was hit with the whole, if you say anything, I'll kill you and kill your parents and, you know, your mom and et cetera, et cetera. So with nowhere to turn to, um, I used to try to just run. I was like, well, if I can just run away and maybe get around the other kids, clearly he won't, you know, he won't do anything. 
And that was easy enough until his mom would lock the basement door and then put her body weight against the door for we couldn't get out. Wow. So it was horrific uh, for me. And I never got that dealt with. Uh, one day, I don't even remember doing this, uh, but one day, cause she was also, you know, touching a little girl. So he was touching us. She was touching a little girls. And so one day I got brave enough and I picked up the phone and I dialed 911. I don't remember doing that. I do remember the police coming and I was removed from the home. So uh, from there, I was uh, bounced around from a couple of the foster homes, uh, finally made it, uh, made it back home. But then I'm, I'm dealing with uh, all these things in my mind that are just, you know, abnormal. And I'm also angry because I'm dealing with the issues of not, you know, not even being with my mom all my life, not knowing my dad, not having family. The people that were supposed to be family locked me in basements, molested me, beat me with extension cords, dumped me in ice water, made me cut toenails and feed grown women salted apples. It was, it was just, it was just not okay. Um, and then when I finally did somewhat get back home and try to get settled, we were living, um, we, we started living in the inner city and I was always in the inner city, but at seven years old, it only does so much to you. But when you're in your developmental years, you really start paying attention to what's going on around you. So I had never got over those things. Now all of a sudden I wake up, I got prostitutes right outside my front door. I got, uh, you know, drug dealing going on. I got rampant violence. I'm engulfed in it because if you're soft, you're going to get eaten up, right? You have to survive. So, and I'm a fighter by nature. So I would go around fighting people, but I wasn't happy. It's like, I'm just full of anger and I'm living in an environment where if I don't use said anger, then I'm going to die. Right. Like I got, I got to be, be able to fight. So, one of my buddies came down to my house when I was 13 years old. He came down to my home and he was like, hey, you know, really excited. Like, hey, you got to come to my house right now. Let's go. Let's go. And I'm like, all right, clearly you're up to something bad. And I want every part of this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I want every part of this. So we, we go about a quarter of a block up the street and we go in his house and he's got this little, this little gun. And then we're running around. We find the ammo, little Tomcat. And we find the ammo and we figure out how to load it. And I tell people, if there was a safety rule, we broke it. We broke safety rules. They haven't been invented yet. Like we broke them all. And we went out on the back porch and look, I'm in, I'm in, I'm, I'm in the inner city. There is no such thing as cops coming to a gunshot. So we fired the gun right off the back porch. It was really cool. Mm -hmm. All right. It's really cool. So we fired it again. And so then we tried to, you know, clean up our mess, you know, um, put everything back the way it was. And I went home and man, I was so fascinated with what occurred. I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And then it hit me. Um, one of my neighbors he was a handyman and he said, Hey, I want you to do me a favor. He barely talked to me. Um, not cause he was mean. He just didn't talk a lot. He was like, just watch me one day. He was like, when you go to school, I want you to talk to somebody, go talk to your counselor and just sit and talk to him. I was like, all right, whatever, man. So I went to school and that led to other things that led to me being sent to some professionals. And I found out that I was uh, uh, clinically depressed at that young age and the reason why I was so infatuated with the gun, and it was, I kept dreaming about the gun making the pain go away. So I kept thinking about suicide. I wanted to go get that gun again before I could kill myself, right? Because I just wanted the pain to go away. And my mother is a phenomenon, but what is she? I don't know, 23? Like, does she know how to deal with a kid with these kind of issues? Does she know how to deal with a kid that went through so much trauma, her being a child herself, right? She didn't. So there was no perfect formula about how to help me. So I just wanted it to stop. I just wanted it to go away. And, and I eventually, you know, I, I turned it around and I decided that I was going to fight myself for my life. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I strive to do. So I, I engulfed myself in education. Um, 
I'm not going to say I didn't make mistakes here and there as far as, you know, where I came up at, but I really focused on education. I really focused on breaking generational curses. And I wanted, you know, that thought of suicide or that, you know, I mean, it was really vivid, like very vivid. Like if I would have had the gun, I would have done it, you know? So I wanted to make sure that I defeated that. And that took a lot. It took for me to learn how to love people, love life, love myself, set goals and go after goals. So I wouldn't focus on giving up. Right. So, graduate high school. Let's do that. I mean, graduate uh, from middle school even, because once you graduate from middle school and you go to high school, guess what? Now you've done something that your parents didn't do. Right. So uh, and when high school, let's do the best we can in high school. Eventually things did catch up to me. They got a little tough for me, a little rough. I did have kind of a slip. Um, the thoughts started coming back uh, right in my midst of my teenage years. And I just, you know, I had to drop out of uh, school my junior, uh, my second semester of my junior year. I had to drop out of school because, you know, I was trying to work full time, help mom at home with the bills. And I was just having relapses, man. The guys around the neighborhood were really testing me. Um, things were going challenging. They were challenging. I was a teenager. So you can add on the fact that you're just a teenager. You don't know you're just going through stuff. Right. And I just was like, OK, enough is enough. I dropped out of school, um, decided that, you know, my life is over. It's, it's too it's too much of a struggle. My mind's too heavy. I'm angry. I don't want to live. Like, I'm just going to just be in the streets until, you know, somebody kills me because that's what's supposed to happen. Um, but that didn't last for too long. I decided that that was not the avenue and, and I, I fought harder. So I went back and I got myself back in school. And because I worked my tail off, I actually graduated with my same class that I was supposed to graduate with. Anyway, I walked the stage with the same kids. And then I realized that moment made me realize that I can achieve and uh, achieve greatness and I can defeat this demon. And from there, um, I just always talk to my friends about their struggles. I let them know in the midst of my struggle that we are not okay. Our environment is not okay. And I used to always say, you know, I don't, I didn't know what it was called. We just used to say the soldiers go crazy, right? When, you know, you were hearing about military guys, this is before the days of the, the internet being so readily available. You hear about dudes coming back from like the military and they're like, oh, they come back from the service and they go crazy. And at that age, I was like, well, if they get to go to that battlefield for four years and they come back and they don't feel okay, what the heck is happening to us? And we're living in it every day. Seriously. You know, I'm like, that can't, that can't be okay. Now I know what is PTSD. Then I didn't. Um, so fighting those things and, and, and going over those things and watching your friends get killed on a regular basis, man, I lived four houses from a tombstone retailer and across the street was the city's largest cemetery. And I lived in the city's roughest area. So you see murder, death, chaos every single day. Me and my buddies would sit on the porch and watch, uh, you know, people we knew or sometimes close friends, watch their parents pick out a tombstone. And we know they're just getting buried right across the street. You know, it was, and then it, the scary part is it becomes normal after a while. So just trying to break all those things. This is not normal. This is not life. This is not what we should be doing. I'm not going to give up on myself. And thus, I'm not going to give up on you. And I even tell a lot of the dudes where I, that come from where I come from, like, you know, systematically, man, uh, you can blame economics, you can blame uh, the social struggle, social struggle, rather, environmental conditions or whatever you want. But part of that was I was, you know, raised and bred and kind of created in this system to not only not value my own life, but to kill other people that look like me. I was bred to do that. So what the environment gave you. So, you know, telling them that I had to learn how to not only love myself, man, I had to learn how to love you guys through the midst, through the chaos. And then just taking all those things, motivating my, my peers and just trying to fight our way throughout the mud. And, you know, some of us made it, some of us didn't. Um, 
I'm, I'm still losing some of my, 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 my childhood friends to the street life now. Uh, still lose, losing them to mental struggles. I have several friends that didn't realize they were sick um, until um, their, their early 30s. They just, they just thought that they were, you know, they liked, they liked violence. I'm like, man, it's not natural to like violence, dude. And, you know, coaching them through that and, you know, watching and knowing people committing suicide. I just decided that I was going to start that program, Aiming for the Truth, where I, I helped rid us of all these um, – all these these environmental things, the roots that are growing out to these evil branches and and really get people to understand that we can fight through them. But first, we have to address the issues at the root. You can't blame a gun. You can't blame a car. You can't blame a brick. You have to deal with the issues and the issues as they're created and come up with formulas and educate and inform people about how they can take those handicaps and turn them into victories. But as long as we're just glazing over the issues and not really talking about them, we're never going to get there. So that's why I started that program. I'm like, if nobody else is going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. Um, and then when it comes down to the gun itself, it's like, great. Cause when I, I know when I tell people openly uh, that I've, I've, I've beat the thoughts of suicide, they get really quiet. Mm-hmm. They get really quiet. And some of them get quiet cause they're shocked that I'm saying it. And I can tell others are getting quiet because they want to know how I did it. Right. Cause you never know what somebody's going through. And when it comes to the gun, it's real easy. When I got properly, I will say, properly introduced to firearms at the, the city PD, um, it was one of those things where I realized just how powerful these tools are and what they could do. And, you know, and they were fun to shoot. And by that time, I was I was well past the stage of wanting to hurt myself. Um, and I realized that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to grab hold of this thing that everybody's scared of that, you know, we only saw for, for chaos and violence. And if it's the source of power, everybody's scared of, I'm going to control it. So the thing that once threatened my life, I grabbed control of it. I turned and now I use it to preserve and protect lives. And so when I tell people like you can literally turn this thing around, I really mean it. And I just started sharing my opinion and giving my voice out there publicly. And here I am now talking to you guys. Uh, You covered so much ground there. I want to, um, We've got a lot of issues facing society right now that are perpetuating violence in different ways, and um, and some of it is lack of uh, oversight within the state. I mean, you talked about foster care and how you were in a foster home, which is supposed to be a safe place for children removed from unsafe places, and then it got worse. Like, that's not supposed to happen, right? And then you talk about... Um, the the police not showing up to a gunshot in a in a neighborhood where you grew up, and that's like that's a problem. And then you become a police officer, and and if anybody doesn't know who's listening, Kevin's a black man, and now we've got this uh, hard hit over the head issue of uh, systemic racism is causing all these problems, right? And and people are sitting there going, what do we do about it? And then we're we're dazzled in the media and social media with these these anecdotal evidences that show, you know, unarmed people getting shot by police and it's just putting everybody at, at odds and in each other's throats. And I'm, I want you to just, I don't want to ask any specific questions, I guess. I just want you to share your thoughts on whatever direction you want to take this. Cause it's a guns and mental health podcast and all this stuff's really intertwined. Um, I don't even know where to go because it's so loaded and so rich and you're so candid with, with what you have to say and, and you got so much experience to speak from. Well, you know, and, all, and, and what I did at the PD is um, I worked in a division called prisoner processing. So I wasn't, I wasn't your patrolman. 
I was the guy that ran certain um, elements of downtown headquarters, the areas around it. And my primary responsibility was to deal with prisoners. That's like what I did. That was like 85% of my life. Um, so with that, you, you know, you still had to understand, you know, everything else that, that came with the thing. It was really weird. However, well, what we're looking at now, I like to tell people that it's too complex to be addressed over social media for one. It is, and it's one of those things where everybody's going to look at, they're going to use confirmation bias to justify whatever it is they want to justify out the situation. Right. So, but overall, you know, when we're looking at different things that are occurring and different things that are happening, um, it actually is a little bit closer to a mental health issue of sorts than what people would like to believe. And here's what I mean by that. So you take all these young men who, although, you know, fathers are more and more day by day becoming more involved in their children's lives. So we're actually on a, um, I see a, a great increase in that um, from the, my angle and what I see. Yeah, that's a good However, thing. there are still a lot of young, young people out there that don't have that, but let's focus on the men because the men are kind of a, the heights of the, the, the conversation. Well, if you have tried to figure, take a kid like me, and my story is not unique at all. So you take, you know, a kid like me, and I've had to figure this thing out on my own. I didn't have a man around to, to, to guide and, and help and do this and that. Mom had to work two, sometimes three jobs in order just to make sure we had a, a roof over our head and uh, some food in the fridge and things of that nature. So... I, we've had to literally run around and figure out how to survive and how to be because the environment produces so much that forces us to grow up early. And a lot of those situations, it doesn't turn into maturity. It just turns into anger because it's not natural. Like boys crave discipline and they do. I don't care what they say. They crave it naturally. And when they don't get it, they get rebellious. Um, when you see chaos every single day, Humans are the most adaptive creatures on earth. We can adapt to anything. I mean, our, our features will literally change if we're in an environment for too long. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, you have to wind up adapting to where you're at. And so you become defensive, you become angry because you have a lot of things to be angry about. And unfortunately, and it might be turning around now, but unfortunately mental health is not something you talk about in the black community. It's just not a popular conversation. So that wasn't really addressed. You were always told to suck it up, be a man, be a man. I'm, I'm, I'm 14, dude. Okay, I'll, I'll suck it up. So all that frustration, all that adaptation to your environment that feels unnatural to you, all the, the loneliness, the lack of discipline, the influence by others, even if you know it's wrong, at least they're giving you some affection and some love. All those things create this kind of like um, explosion, if you will, inside of somebody. And it's only going to come out in one of two ways if it's not if it's not properly addressed in tears or terror. You're going to get it one of two ways. Either I'm going to cry, which we're told not to do, which kind of blocks that. Either I'm going to cry, sit on a couch, talk to a buddy, go see a therapist, and I'm going to get these things out. Or you're going to receive all this terror because I am fed up and I am frustrated. So one way or another is going to come out. But while I'm dealing with that process, here comes this guy and his, his cute little car with his flashy lights. And he's telling me what to do. But what is authority to me? 
because I don't I don't see an authority figure in front of me. I see a man that's trying to tell or a woman in some many cases that's trying to tell me what to do. But if you look at it, you have more compliance, even if it's yelling with female officers than you do men, because a man in our communities are used to women given authority. They're just more used to it. Right. So and it's kind of like, all right, it's kind of like my mom talking to me. So I still might be giving you some slack, but, you know, but especially with the men. You pull up, you get out your car, you give me an order. Nobody gives me orders. I've had to figure this thing out since forever. No, I don't want to come here. No, I don't want to talk to you. And if I do, I want to know, what do you want? Why are you disturbing me? Because I don't see you just getting out your car, having a conversation with us. You've never just pulled over and said hi to me. You know, when, when, when I wanted to maybe get to know who you were, you just drove by, gave me a stink look. I don't know you. So what do you want from me? Oh, well, whatever the directive may be, whether it be lawful, unlawful, whatever the case may be. No, because I'm not I'm not in, interested in entertaining anybody that wants to have control over me, because as long as I've been con- craving control, as long as I've been craving discipline, as long as I've been wanting somebody to sit there and guide me straight through the chaos and navigate this this map of madness with me, as long as I've been desiring that and seeking it out in various ways, you were never there. I'm not looking at an authority figure. I'm looking at the man, the dad that was never there for me. I am angry at you. Don't you pretend to tell me what to do. And then on the flip side, you have the authority figure and we can take crooked or not crooked out of the equation for a second. You have the authority figure that's there to be the authority figure. But the same problems you having with cops, even though with the police officers, a lot more physical, don't get me wrong. But on a, on a certain level, it's the same issue you're having with school principals, teachers, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bus drivers, anybody in a position of authority, you were seeing them being rebelled against. Because as long as we were craving authority, you didn't, you deprived us of it. So now that I've figured this thing out on my own, who the hell are you to come tell me how to behave and how to act? Where were you when I was crying out for that attention and that direction? It's too late now. I'm a 15-year-old grown man. I know what it's like to, to have to steal or, or, or uh, uh, go work a job before I'm supposed to work a job, right? Taking just cash from the local corner store to sweep up the floor in the back before I can some way help mom put food on the table. Where were you, dad? Because I'm not, I'm not really arguing with the cop in front of me. I'm arguing with the man that was never there. Right. You know, so I think that leads to this... Um, this explosion and this confrontation. And then you can add in the bad apples because there are bad cops. Absolutely. You can add in the bad apples. You can add in people that just do the wrong thing too. Uh, So it can be, it can be a mix of it, but that's why I'm trying to get America to understand something. Let's use the George Floyd situation, for example. Um, George Floyd, you know, if you're, if you're trusting the reports we see online had um, uh, fentanyl and other, you know, intoxicating substances inside of his system. Okay. If George Floyd was, you know, doing drugs, obviously that's not healthy for any of us. It doesn't give you a sentence to death. Okay. Whatever petty crime would pass in a counterfeit $20 bill he might've committed that day or might not have committed that day. Um, doesn't matter. But when we can look at, you know, a man laying on another man, man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and America, not everybody out, let's just say 50, 50. America is then 
you know, lashing out saying, oh, well, he was a criminal. He was a, he was a drug dealer. He robbed a woman before he broke in her house and he did this and oh my God. So they're using, they're saying, basically we have to validate your criminal past before we can verify the value of your life. And what a large portion of the community is saying, besides just that was wrong what that cop did. And it's even more horrendous the fact that you're trying to say that this man basically was nothing. So he should have died. What you forget is our environment produces a ton of that. So you're not just talking about another guy on the ground. You were talking about people we live with every day. You're talking about people that we understand that although they might be addicted to drugs, they're trying to get away from it. But if you want to talk about the longevity of it, why don't you talk about how Reagan helped put crack cocaine in our neighborhoods? But nobody wants to have that conversation. Talk about the Contra operation. Talk about Iran and how that led to the Nicaraguans running cocaine legally into the United States. And then they put crack into our system and gave us more prison time for crack than you did in the suburbs with cocaine and those type of things. Talk about that, about how we've been used systematically to be torn down. Right. And everybody's like, well, you're free. You're in America. Dude, we didn't even get over civil rights to mid 60s. And that's just when it was supposed to become legal. Nothing. Nothing just happens overnight. Right. So now we got to wait another 10, 15 years for America to catch up with it. So now you're talking about the late 70s, early 80s and not even six, seven years after that, we get cracked up into our neighborhoods. And then not six, seven years after that, you get the crime bill that puts us in prison and, and puts tons of law enforcement and unfair laws and and all kind of crazy mess that even the authors of the bill have came out and apologized for, by the way. But what people aren't looking at is all the chaos and broken families and things that that created. So, yes, I can say when you look at today and when you're, you're trying to tear down somebody because of their criminal past, our environment produces criminals. We are trying to get over that. But you are literally talking about. I'm not going to say half because that's too much of a number, but you're talking about a decent portion of our family members that by technicality are criminals. Doesn't mean they're committing criminal acts. Doesn't mean they're still out there living a lifestyle, but you could be talking about my uncle who is a great man. Maybe he was smoking a little weed that day. Maybe he did put a little crack in the system, but he wants you out there currently trying to hurt anybody. But does that give you the authority then to suffocate him and take his life? And then when everybody's talking about Americans, Americans treat the ghetto as an experiment. They use, they use the black voice for convenience when it's about pushing things like the Second Amendment. They use it for their convenience. But then when it's about equality and justice and saying, yes, we understand that he might have been a criminal, but he's still a human. And despite where you come from, criminals come from every environment. I can go to the most well-to-do suburb in this country and find a criminal. I absolutely can. So, But we're going to take away the value of his life. We are going through... Not that nobody else is, because Americans do go through a lot of trauma. But we're going through a a certain portion of trauma over here. And from our viewpoint, you're basically saying that 15, 20 percent of us don't matter because the law has deemed us a criminal or because we have a past based off the conditions we were given. And all of a sudden, when you look out and you have all this abuse and things happening, then people are like, well, you know what you did in the past led up to what you're going through now. No, you're just. I want to curse so bad because that is the stupidest thing to say to an individual when they've lost their life. Yes. Does your, can your past play a part in who you are in your present? Absolutely. It can. Right. You know, so, Hey, if a bank got robbed next door to your house and you've robbed 10 of them before, I might look at you, (laughs) you know, absolutely. But it doesn't mean that we get to be, you know, executioners. And I think when it comes to 
um, a large portion of America, they look when something happens with law enforcement against somebody that they can verify being a criminal, they look at it as the case of, well, the cops just did a good job. But you're not looking at the fact that that's not that cop's job. His job is not to murder you. His job is not to say, oh, you were a criminal, you know, seven years ago? Cool. I won't value your life. And look, we did the same thing with Ahmaud Arbery, right? Everybody torn to his criminal past. Oh, my God, he, he was... He was convicted of, uh, you know, carrying a gun illegally at the age of 19. So what did Kyle Rittenhouse just do? Right. While right. we're talking about, you know, like if we're going to go there, like it's the same logic, right? He was 19, Kyle 17. He had a handgun, Kyle had a long gun, right? It's the kind of the same philosophy. So the difference is one guy didn't initially anyway get arrested. So we didn't address Kyle as a criminal with a gun. When technically he might have been, you know, there might be some nuances in a state law or whatever. But technically, he may or may not have been. But even with Ahmad, you you watch this guy, you know, laying down on the ground, and it's it's hard for the communities to get behind a lot of voices when they're like, oh, well, Ahmad was a criminal because he got caught with a gun at 19. Like, man, shut up. Where's this purity test? Because I need for everybody to take it. You've never done anything in your past. The difference between most criminals and us today is we didn't get caught. That is literally the difference in a lot of situations. Just by being a criminal, it doesn't matter what you did, the term criminal, we just didn't get caught. Criminal can be translated into lawbreaker. I guarantee every American, if you sit back and look over the last week, you broke a law. Mm-hmm. You broke something. Mm-hmm. Or, some, yeah. or somebody can suspect you of breaking something. So when we go down to, um, to Georgia even, and those weren't, you know, that was former law enforcement in that situation, but you look at the cover-up and you look at, you know, all the slick things they tried to do until the video was leaked. Well, America's, oh, he's a criminal. He's, his life doesn't, you know, yeah, who cares? Oh, he got, you know, his second charge was stealing a TV or being involved in a stolen TV from Walmart. Man, look, 15% of the households in America got a stolen TV from Walmart. Sure, let's be real. Let's be real. Y'all know somebody to work in the back on the dock or something like that and they help you. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just an odd person. I don't, none of these things ever really happen in life. <laughs> but, you know, um, you know, you, you go and you go and you look at it. And when everybody's like, yeah, you know, screw it. Just another criminal, you know, and you saw now this isn't, this isn't everybody. This is a certain subset that's saying like, oh, well, you know, just a, another black thug, you know, laying in the, laying in the ground. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They commit 50% of the murders anyway. Okay. Well, two things. One, uh, explain this to me. Why would uh, Travis McMichael murder Ahmaud Arbery and stand over his body and say effing N-word if it was all about him defending himself? Why would that come out of your mouth? Right. Why did they op- testify to that in open court? Hmm? Why that? Why do we look at your social media? Is it also laced with the word? Hmm? So what is that, right? Why, when your dad even came out and said that you guys really didn't see him committing any crime whatsoever, he just looked suspicious, so you decided to Two, two, two white guys in the South decided that to hop in a, a pickup truck. One of them then gets in the bed with his 357 Magnum with his son armed with a 12-gauge shotgun with their neighbor buddy joining them, chasing them down in the other truck, circling his kid and corralling them in. Yeah. Mm, right? Sounds like a modern-day lynching to me. But America's like, well, he's a criminal, Kev. It doesn't matter. So that's why we. That's why people get so defensive. And, that, and then you can't even have a conversation when let's say it, it's law enforcement in a situation that is valid and maybe the community is overreacting, right? But at that time, it's kind of hard to reel them in and just talk, you know, well, hey, guys, look, I'm telling you in this situation, I don't know if we can be mad at the cop here. You know, that, you know, this was a little, hold on, we got to hold people accountable too. If they do wrong, they got to be held, you know, accountable for that. Like, we can't skip over that. And then, but it's hard to rein them in because they're so defensive. 
And then the people on the other side of the cops are like, well, see, look at this one, look at this one. And then they, they, they hyper on it. So you can't, you can't bring many Americans. I am thankful for the Americans that are, are able to have the conversation, but then even when they bring up that, Hey, 50% of the crime, um, Hey, check this out. So 50% of the murders. So yeah. Um, if you look at it really about 1%, we all understand that if you're in a community, that's probably where the most violent crime is going to happen to people that look like each other or, you know, have other cultural similarities. So when you look at it, do we have a, a gang issue of sorts? Sure. Absolutely. There, that is an issue. And I'm not going to deny that. All right. But so when you look at it, roughly four and a half percent to 5% of those murders, a are, you know, um, committed by black men and two black men that are in gangs. So that leaves roughly 1% of non-gang affiliated people, not saying they're not a criminal, but non-gang affiliated people, roughly 1% of the 50% you're trying to blame that commit the murder. So now we're down to, if you take the gang members out, just like we take two thirds of the suicides out, if you take the gang related shootings or the drug wars, if you will, out of the equation. Okay. So that's 1%. We get rid of the other 49 and attribute that to the gang population. So tell me who's committing the other 50% of the murders in the country. But when you, when you kind of beat people upside the head and you, you know, you show them that, you know, the, the, the talking points you're repeating, those things are, you know, unhealthy for you and the facts of the conversation. But then to your point earlier, they kind of, you know, get into this uh, case of denial and things of that nature. Because I will openly tell you, yes, I believe in uh, black and Hispanic cultures, we have a gang problem. That is true. But we can also talk about why we have a gang problem, which is back to the whole social issue thing. So, yes, do we have a gang problem? I will acknowledge that. And aiming for the truth and some of my mentorship and when I go to the schools with the kids, I understand why gang members um, or just gangs, because these kids aren't the gangs in the, the 80s and 90s. This is this is totally different. This is more of clicks than it is gangs, really. Um, you know, it, it's like, you know, it's, it's not it's not what it was. It's something totally different, um, but, you know, still kind of the same, I guess, same outcome. But these, these kids don't have, in many cases, they don't have anything else to go to. And when you cut off the resources and you're not putting people in the communities that really care, um, and some of that are the community leaders' fault. I'm going to absolutely say that the people that run these areas are not doing the work they should do to make sure they're helping out. That is accurate and that is valid. They're more concerned about themselves and their political connections and their careers than they are actually about helping the communities. So when they're void of all those things, then you're going to get chaos. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because it's, it's a long conversation. And but then the counterpoint to that will be politically uh, with people is well, that's why you know these these centers need to put. Uh, more, you know, conservative or Republican people in office because, you know, the the current system and the current structure of the Democrats isn't working. So let's just change it up. And here's my thing before this black Republican thing became a big ordeal. Here's my thing. Hey, do me a favor, because I grew up in the hood and been in many hoods. And I think I have a lot of life experience. And even today that I don't live, per se, in the hood anymore. Where is my white Republican that has the great ideas and they might contain the great ideas that's ever walked in my neighborhood and asked for a vote. Yeah. Why is that? I'll, t- I'll tell you why I can give you one. I, mean, I, can, I can fill in the mental gaps, but, but I want to hear yeah. it from you. So the, I was at a, 
it was in a suburb of St. Louis, about 45 minutes outside the city. And it was uh, a conservative-ish rally. And I walked in, and man, I can tell you, I know Donald Trump is kind of like a narcissist, but I think if he would have seen the shrine they have for him, he would have got scared. It was, it was like next level stuff. I'm like, I think that if that man was to see this himself, he would probably have secret service looking to you guys. Right. Cause <laughs> this is a bit, bit extreme. Um, but they, they're, they're, they get me out there and, you know, they wanted me, I was invited there to have the challenging, uh, the challenging voice in the audience. And we had a really good conversation, really good. It wasn't confrontational at all because I don't, I don't do like Republican Democrat and all that. I don't get in that fight. Um, but you know, I was just there to present information and this lady, and they all identified as conservative Republicans. That's their self-identity. And she says, well, how is a, cause I was speaking about getting involved in the communities and, it, and that doesn't mean you're not smart. That doesn't mean you don't call for a liaison, somebody that can help you navigate the area. I mean, you gotta be smart about the way you do things. Right. Um, I said, but I don't, I don't ever see you guys there, even after I gave them some tips and tricks about how they can do it in a smart way and offered to be a resource myself. I said, if you just want to have a conversation, I'm not going to side with you because I don't, I don't do political, you know, I don't, politics to me is like gangs. I avoided gangs for a reason. I avoid politics for the same reason. So I said, I'm not going to side with you, but I do think it's only fair if you have a seat at the table to have a conversation, right? So I'll take you to the people and you can have a conversation. And she, this woman looks at me, and she's probably 48, 49 years old. Um, and she looks at me, and in a very calm, and she wasn't trying to be offensive at all. She asked a, a serious question. She's like, but I'm a, I'm a white woman. I said, I said, okay. I thought you were an American, but continue. She said, um, well, what happens if I'm walking down the street, and then I see two fellas, and they see me, and they want to hurt me? And I said, that's exactly why you'll never win. Because you don't know that those two individuals, why? Because you've seen, you know, scary movies or horror movies. You think the dude with the jeans on and the hoodie and the Timbos leaning against his car, you think he's just going to rob you? Like you, you, you realize that most of us are looking for what we call the Jack boys anyway, because we don't want them robbing us. Like those will be the same dudes to save your life. That's where they come from. That's why they dress like that. Well, you, you expect to walk down in the middle of the ghetto and see a dude with a sweater tied around his waist? No, it's not the way we dress, man. Like get over it. It's not, it's not what happens. So I was like, he's just, they're just, we're just, that's just our culture, man. It's like, it's not a problem. But I said, I told her, I said, but the real thing is you've actually exposed openly, which I thank you for, because we can't fix it if we don't have these conversations. You've just exposed the mentality of everybody else in the room. They're like, absolutely. That'll be great. That's the reason why you were hoping, you were hoping that I was a black conservative or black Republican. And that you can tell me your talking points and I can go deliver the message for you. And now I just busted your bubble and the entire room was quiet because they, that's what they thought I was going to be said, no, you need to go there. So if you're going to say that they're doing it wrong, who the hell is going to come fix it? At least give me a chance to see the other side of things, right? To have that conversation. So no. So it's like, you're scared of the area. You claim that they're not doing a good enough job for it. And then you get to talking to me about freedom in America and the second amendment. I'm like, well, if anybody anywhere for any reason tries to hurt you, don't you carry a gun? Yeah. So what's the problem, <laughs> you know? And, and it, it just, and I wasn't expecting them to give me an answer. I wanted them to be quiet because that means they were reflecting like he's, you know what the dude's right, man. I'm not going down in the middle of that. No, I'm not doing that. Then stop criticizing. It. If you're not going to help, shut up. 
I want to briefly talk about vocabulary because um, the the racist word, the word racist, racism, has come out, and I think it's almost lost its meaning. My understanding of it is somebody who intentionally oppresses or treats poorly another person based on their race. And the intent matters in that definition. And I don't know if that's an accurate definition. It certainly seems to not be the case anymore. But what I'm hearing you say is that we have unconscious pre-programmed biases that don't necessarily amount to racism, which is an intentional act. But we've got these unintentional, unconscious acts that predict our behaviors and we're not aware of them until they're pointed out to us. And then we get scared because we don't want to change our minds about what we believe because it's all a belief system. And it's this lens through which we see the world. And then challenging that is very scary because it means we have to let go of it and embrace something new. And that whole process is very challenging. And, you know, that's what I do clinically. Um, what is your understanding of racism, which sounds like what happened with Ahmad, versus mm-hmm. any other stripe of that, which is what we're dealing with when we have talking heads, talking about what they want to do versus acting in the capacity that they would like to maybe, or at least what they state they want to do? Well, I think racist, you know, racist is the definition you gave is, is, is pretty spot on. I mean, it's, it's exactly that, you know, your, your hatred or your, your discrimination or mistreatment of someone because of their culture or their race. Um, it's pretty much what it is. I think a lot of people, there are some racists in, in the world. Absolutely, there are. I believe there are more people with a prejudice and a bias. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a prejudice is a, a little different. It's a lot different, actually, from being racist. Like, we all we all carry a prejudice. We all carry some type of prejudice, and we all carry a bias. So I, I think that understanding that first uh, is important because I agree with you. Every time I look at anything and people disagree, you're a racist. I'm like, if you're a black dude, you disagree with the white dude, you're a black racist. If you're a white dude, disagree with the black dude, you're a white racist. Like, everybody's racist. You know, like, it's crazy. Like, the word is so watered down now, you can't even get to the real. Like, the real racists are loving it. They're like, oh, God, we're all one family now. I'm just blending in. (laughs) Um, So it's definitely an overused term. And I think the real reason behind that is in the big midst of the conversation, People don't understand, A, they don't understand and look at ignorance for what it truly is, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the Webster definition of ignorance, it's just, you just don't know. You right. just don't know right. the thing, right? And so we have to understand that you, wherever you grow up at, right, because life is not always peaches and cream. Now, I don't care what your house looks like. I, I don't care. I've dealt with plenty of people that have been struggling in their mind uh, that, you know, grew up in six, $700,000 homes, you know, right? And I, it, it doesn't matter, right? It's just there are different things that drove them to the place of being uncomfortable or being uh, or having issues to deal with. But your environment overall is different than the way I grew up. Because whenever I saw a six or $700,000 home, you were like, you, you famous? Like, what do you guys do? Right. And so I'm looking at you like, what could be wrong with your life? Right. Now, this is not, no, this is ignorance to the fact that humans are humans, but what could be wrong with your life? And then, you know, you're looking at me like, Oh, well, if you just work hard, you know, you can have the same stuff. And it's like, yeah, but somebody has got to give me a first shot. Mm -hmm. 
You know, my granddad started this company 50 years ago, and that's how my family bought this house. So you get this this divide because in one one end of the country, it's everybody with their experiences, and on the other end is everybody else with theirs. And when you don't understand what I'm saying, I want to title you in such a way that I can validate to myself that you're doing it from a place of malice. Thus, you're a racist because I'm going to be able to throw that term on you and say, see, it's not that you don't really understand me. It's the fact that you don't like me. You don't like me because I'm a black man or because I'm a white man saying this thing to you. So I give you the title racist so I can confirm my own bias, my own prejudice, even though you might not be a racist. You know, I even told, I told a guy one time that all racists are a-holes, but not all a-holes are racist. Hmm. No, it's just, a, it's just a fact. So we have to be able to look past that. If somebody starts off a conversation with me, and accuses me of being a racist, I'm done talking to you. I won't even listen to you. Like you could, you could type away. I'm literally going to leave your comment there for other people can comment on your comment for I can get my engagement up. Like literally, I'm just using you at that point, but I'm not going to talk to you because you've, you've really lost me um, with a mature conversation. Uh, racist for what they are or vile, evil human beings. Now, what I do believe we have a big problem with because of the bias and the, uh, the prejudice and the ignorance and willful ignorance is that when other people are trying to share their experiences or their viewpoints with you, we shut them off. And that's the biggest problem, right? Because I, you know, the example I use, I went to a trailer park when I was 17, 17 years old. Um, I went to a trailer park. I was working for a door to door sales company and they promised to take me all over the country and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, a break from the ghetto. Let's go. And I went from a black ghetto to a white ghetto. <laughs> just, it was I'm what smiling because I know this story. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I got to learn and hear because I'm curious. I've always been a curious guy and I wanted to ask the people, you know, like, what's your life like? Because I'm looking at it. It doesn't look nice. Right. And what I what what really came out of that was the fact that, you know, a lot of the people in the trailer parks that would, you know, get their news from a local paper, word of mouth, wherever the news, wherever they get their news from, believed that many black Americans were spoiled brats that were just waiting for the government to give them handouts because that's how it was given to them. Right. And then many black Americans thought that, A, most white people had it good. And if you didn't have a good and you happen to be somebody that's poor and white, that poor white people are inherently racist. So I was like, hold on. Now, this is me as a teenager. I'm like, well, hold on. We don't say that. Like, I'm not saying there's not a couple of dudes somewhere that do say that, but it's not like, the narrative. It's not the it's narrative. It's not the narrative. That, like what? Like, no. And, I, and I'm explaining it. They're like, so hold on. You know, and these guys are like, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean to tell me like, you're not on welfare. I was like, if I was on welfare, dude, I wouldn't be standing in front of your door trying to get you by this all-purpose cleaner. Got a great sale today. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, absolutely not. Like, what do you know? This is no, like, I don't, I don't take my mom never took welfare and be like, hold on. And that was the single black woman with a child that didn't take welfare. And I'm like, no dude, like my mom worked. And then when I got old enough, I worked, we don't, we don't do the welfare stuff. I mean, we, we just don't, my dad doesn't even pay child support because, we didn't really go after welfare because then the state will go after him for paying the money back. I was like, so no. And they were just like, wow. And I was just like, wow. And first of all, whatever's going on in this park of a trailer that you guys have going on here, 
I'm pretty sure you get some get you get you get treated funny by the police. Oh man, the stories. Yeah. Oh man, the stories they would tell. I was like, oh well, you know, we go through similar stuff. And what we came to understand is we aren't that different. But because of the things we absorb and the things that we allow into us, then and you're always gonna have the outliers, right? You can always find somebody that confirms your worst fears, right? You can always find them. You add all those three things together, and it's like, dude, if we if we remove that, we're really we're really we're different. We're culturally different. We got different experiences. We look different. You know, we 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 talk different. And that's to me, that's beautiful. Because imagine if everybody in the world looked exactly alike. That would be boring. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> and even if we were all white or all black, everybody was one color. You know what it would be? Even if you were the exact same shade. Well, what color are your eyes? Mm-hmm. How thick are your eyebrows? Right. And what color is your hair? We're always going to find a reason to like separate each other. Right. And so I used to look at it like it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And then some of those dudes, you know, we, we were uh, pen pals for a little while and then it kind of phased off. But, you know, even now I'm going to give back with some, some country trailer park white boys. Cause I want to go mud. Like that looks fun. I want to go mud. All right. So I'm like, we have to be able to look across the spectrum and realize that until we get to talking and really, um, really getting down to who we are as Americans and cut out the middleman, mainstream media, newspapers, internet, whoever you want to blame, then that bias is always going to be confirmed and the prejudice is going to continue because every day you wake up, you're, you're reconfirming it to yourself with what you're absorbing in. Like, and, and this is why I was going to say, Jake, for you, um, not only did you help out in, in your, and for those who don't know, Jake is a white guy and you know, we're, we're out there in um, Phoenix I meet Jake and I know I got this, this program that I'm in love with. Obviously if it's your baby, you're in love with it. And he jumps right in and donates in and then unsolicited. I look up, you know, again, and you know, uh, you help feed some kids by the way. And like, I see this other deposit from him and like, he's not from where I'm from. He, he, he doesn't, you know, share the exact same stories. We talk long enough. I'm pretty sure we got a lot in common. Right. But he was willing to donate and help out with a program that started is not only, but that started off with kids in my, in my kind of area. And he went above and beyond. And then you look at, you know, Mike, who, if you don't know, is kind of like an honorary brother. We're trying to, find <laughs> um, but you know, you look at, you look at Mike and Mike, um, different backgrounds, still different than mine. Um, kind of like in between me and Jake, kind of like floating right there in the middle. Um, but a different background, a little bit more ruggedness in the background. And, you know, I, I, I look up and Mike is, um, you know, along with Jake, they're both helping me take kids to go see, you know, the civil rights movie, uh, um, uh, uh, Harriet and well, the anti-slavery movie, Harriet, they're taking me to go do that. Mike has donated. Mike has allowed me to stay in his home. Uh, I mean, they, they done a lot. Mike has introduced me to connections. He's helped me, you know, get, uh, guns to provide, you know, resources and information for people where I can actually take people out and shoot and I have equipment. So if I was somebody that was, you know, a victim of ignorance, prejudice, and bias, then that would need, that would close off doors from other individuals that don't have my background, that are totally different than me, but that are pouring into me. Therefore, I can pour into other individuals to try to take away some of the pain and some of the, the, the chaos in the community. So I think that individuals need to do themselves a favor. You need to get off of your high horse and get out of your own mind. Here's a project for you. Go talk to somebody that you believe just off what you see on the news that you believe that you have a problem with. Go talk to them and don't go pick the friend, you know, like, for example, and it it just is what it is. Every time somebody wants to have a conversation about 
Republican and Democrat. And, you know, they try to make it a black-white issue. The first thing they do is find a black dude that's Republican and have a conversation. No. Go literally have a conversation with somebody that sees things totally different than you. You know, do it, do it over a drink, man. Do it, do it over a burger, you know, maybe a cigar or whatever. And just, you know, don't take your emotions, take your logic and your wit and have a real conversation because that's why America is going through a continuous mental health issue on a broad level is because we are literally addicted to misery. We are addicted to our confirmation bias. We are a victim of tribalism and those things are not healthy for you. They are just not And, you know, you look at these people arguing on the Internet all day, and I believe most of them are arguing with such with such venom because nobody validates them in real life. And the Internet is the only place where they feel like they have somewhat of a voice. And because they understand that face to face, like I tell many guys, like when they're like, oh, even even the dudes that are like, oh, well, you know, I would love to have a conversation one day about this uh, black on black crime issue. And I shut them down at one meeting. I did it at GRPC. I was like, Hey, how do you guys feel about when we say, um, uh, when they say uh, gun crime and then they're like, crime is crime. And I, I, I primed them up a certain way to say it. And they got all excited and they're like, crime is crime. I said, exactly. Yeah. It's not gun crime. So why the hell is it black crime? Silence again. Yeah. Crickets. Of course. And you know, it's like, no, we don't, and we don't go around saying Asian on Asian crime, white on white crime. We don't even say brown on brown crime. And technically I'm, I'm brown. So this is, it really confused me when I was a kid, like, but I'm brown. I'm not really like my hair is black. It was, that's a whole nother conversation, but, um, you know, having really bringing those things to the forefront, but I'm like, guys, that's what you're using in your talking points though. But it's the same way. It's the same logic. So until you're willing to, to get beyond that and stop looking for somebody to pat you on the back. So I tell people all the time, don't invite me to your speaky thingy if all you want me to do is patronize to the crowd. It's not going to happen. Well, Kevin, I'm going to say how I feel. Uh, uh, one question I have for you, because for, for many years working in this industry, I felt I would avoid industry events. Um, people thought I just didn't care, <laughs> but it was because I couldn't sit in an echo chamber all the time. Like I didn't want to be around people that said the same things and hit the same super conservative talking points. Um, sometimes it just got old to me um, as the years went on and I was showing up to gun shows. Like, you know, I always had my booth at them and I could always just sit in my, my booth, but you started to see different faces, especially in the influencer level. You, you know, you, you'd see things like black guns matter and Collins and you, and, you know, obviously I don't want to take away from guys who've been there for years, like Ken, you know, black man with a gun, um, you know, has been there forever, but it, it's, it's made, it's getting better. Um, where we're failing in the firearms industry, where I really like to see some change, if we're going to be honest, is on the business side. You know, I don't see a lot of employees and different major companies, um, you know, it kind of hits that stereotype still. Right. But and who knows, maybe you just start getting your own companies. Right. They, that's the way you do it. Like you you know, have gone out and made a name for yourself and you have your own business. But I guess my question to you is what was that like coming into the industry? And I mean, did you, were you looking around? Who did you, who brought you in? Like, were you looking around and saying like, okay, there's some people I identify with, or were you just kind of like, I got to kind of fucking kick the door down and come in. That's a really good question, man. You know what? Um, when I first started my, um, you know, firearms company. Now, let's, I'm always going to be honest, you know, 
for a while there, I went LLC. You know, I was just like a guy taking people out, training them, right? So when, like, the, the cadets would ask for, everybody knew I was, like, the gun dude. So the cadets would want some training, you know, to get ready for the academy or, you know, people around the neighborhood. I wanted to help people, and that's where no other choice came from, right? Because I saw so many good people. That was my, that was kind of my job. My job was I was closing cages on folks. Like, that's what I did. So seeing good people make bad mistakes, I wanted to educate them um, and get them past their mistakes because where, when a, where a lot of people get in trouble is they think self-defense is common sense and it's not. So I wanted to make sure they understood that before you ever get into any kind of situation or anything where you're using any kind of thing that can be construed as a weapon or hell, even a fist, then you need to make sure that you are thinking these things through because I'm watching you guys, you know, hundreds a year that are coming through my system and you're not a bad person. And I'm watching your soul, like literally leave your body when reality hits. Right. I'm watching you, you know, struggling to, to understand that your house needs to go up, that grandma's putting her house up, that you're forking over every inch of savings you got just to get out of trouble. You didn't think you were really in. And then on the flip side of it, I'm also working with real live monsters. I'm working with murderers and rapists and things like that. So it's like a balance of knowing how to defend yourself. So um, that's when I started nor the choice when I had that, that kind of epiphany, I was like, I want to make sure that people understand that you should extend God's grace and mercy to others as you will want to extend it to you. As long as you don't allow yourself or another innocent person to get hurt in the process. However, if they put, leave you with a, leave you at, um, at a point where your back's against the wall and they leave you with no other choice, then you do what you have to do. And that was the philosophy I wanted people to have. So I, I started off by just training people, uh, locally and taking whoever out who wanted to go. And then when I LLC'd, um, I decided to, you know, start a Facebook page and all that jazz. And I would only put up stories of local crime. That's it. Like you would never see my face. None of that. It was only stories of local crime. And when the class was like, I'm going to drive you with fear to my class. Hey, somebody got murdered. Where do you live? Up, oh, up the street. Let's go. Like, right, get in my class. You know, um, it's kind of what I did. And, and, one day I was having a conversation with some buddies and I was complaining about how, when it came down to the two a that we missed so many opportunities with real conversations, people weren't addressing the things I wanted to be addressed. Uh, they, they weren't passionate enough about what they were doing. And then when I did see a couple of guys that were pretty cool at, I'm like, well, why are they by themselves? Like, it's just not enough. And I never, you know, decided that I was going to, like, be a somebody. But what happened is I wound up getting, um, when I made my first video, I wound up getting an invite to go out to record a TV series for Carbon TV in Utah. So I was, you know, I knew a couple of people behind the scenes and stuff, and we made that happen. And so I was out there, and I'm like, oh, look at these. I had a Hollywood producer, really strange man. They're strange people. But like a legit Hollywood producer making this show, right? Um, and I'm like tripping off of him. Everything's so funny because he's so eccentric. I'm like having a great time. Um, and I'm looking at these, you know, the dudes that I'm out there working with or, you know, it's uh, Delivered Dynamic Institute. These guys are are, are the real deal. They're, they've been there, done that type of guys, right, with all the great resumes. And I'm looking around at all the other contestants. And then I'm looking at myself. I'm like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the only black dude. I'm 10,000 feet above sea level in the middle of in Utah. Like, how did I get here? I was just making posts about coming to take a concealed carry class last week. Like what happened? And so when I got back, I got back to my hotel and I decided that I was going to talk about, um, 
being a being a black man with a gun. All right. I didn't. And I, that's what I was going to do. Like, why are you scared of it? So I literally walked into the back of this Holiday Inn and pull out my cell phone and started talking. And that's all I did. Like, why are you scared? These are some of the parameters you're putting on yourself. I get it. I understand the fear. And I put up that video and I put up that video and it spread around. And then it was um, it was just kind of like a snowball effect from there. I started talking and then talking more. And then I. Um, I started getting buzzed. I started getting certain people starting to follow me, people in the industry. And then I went to, um, I went to a party and I, it might've been Atlanta. It might've been Atlanta. And I had met a few people and knew some industry folks. And my name was, you know, kind of out there a little bit. And I went to a, a party James Jager was throwing. That's who was throwing it. So James Jager was throwing a party. I went to the party and I'm sitting down at this table and I got this crowd around me somehow. It's just a crowd of us somehow. And it was, it was uh, all black people talking at first. Um, and then we got surrounded by the white people at the party. So it was like, like, a, like a reverse Oreo thing. It was kind of cool. So, and we were sitting there and we were having a conversation about cultural issues and guns. And I was just talking. And I'm, I'm really, I'm seeing everybody around me because they're, they're kind of like curious about what I'm saying. So, you know, they're not being mean. They're just like, what's this guy talking about? And next thing I know, I get like this dude, like, I need you to stay still, not move. Just stay still and not move. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm here. He comes back with this little, you know, this kind of short, really in shape dude. And I look up at him. I was like, yep, I know who you are. And it was Darren Lasort. And Darren goes, you or on my show with Coleon Noir in two weeks. I'm like, get them. I said, here go this Hollywood crap. Yeah, right, man. Okay, sure. I'm going to be on the war show in two. Yeah, okay. Right. You know, so but we exchanged cars and things like that. Two weeks to the day, he called me. <laughs> two weeks to the day. He called me. He was like, yeah, I'm going to put you on the phone with the producer, and we're going to work it out. And they invited me on his show for the first time, and I did it. And the next thing you know, after I did this show, all kind of other podcasts are coming out. I went back on this show again. And then again and again, and then I did Dana's show, I did Grant's show, I did the, the whole gambit, um, Cam, and then from there, everybody else started inviting me on their shows, and I just would go on shows and talk and share my opinion, and the next thing you know, you know, kind of like the rest is history, but I never, I never stopped the grind, and I think I was also a lot different from regular, I guess, influencers. Like, I'm not the dude that wants, like, I don't walk up to you and say, hey, I'm cool, Send me a gun. I can do a review. Get you some clicks. Sup? Me and you, baby. Let's rock it. Right? Because I want a garage full of crap. No. You know? So when I went up to people, I'm like, hey, I do have, you know, hey, I got like this market of people. I didn't realize, you know, I had this market of people. But you know what? This market of people needs to know about different options available to them. No point in me talking to them, getting them all good to go, and I can't educate them. Right? So um, this community, if you don't know, spends a trillion dollars a year in entertainment alone. Alone. So from a business standpoint, you might want to uh, get over here, right? And so just having those conversations led to a lot of different organizations and companies supporting in various ways. Um, and the, the rest is just kind of history. I think when it, when it came to working with companies uh, or still working with them to today, I think the thing that, um, that sets me apart is that your product, when I'm talking to you, your product isn't just something I use to make cool. Like it's really going into the hands of the people that buy it. Right. So you might not, there are a lot of times, man, I've had, I won't name the company. They're, they're a pretty decent sized company that makes handguns. 
they sent me a couple of handguns. I literally took those things out and allow people to work with them and, and, and you know, uh, shoot them. And I would do a couple of videos on them now here and there. Um, but they accounted to the fact that, you know, sending me out a couple of guns just to help me educate people led to them selling crates of them. So that's the kind of relationship I want where people can just be, you know, we can really get stuff into the hands of people. So I never, I never came into it like, Hey, I want to be cool and be a cool YouTuber. That was just not saying YouTubers aren't cool. I watch a lot of them, but that was never like what I wanted to be. It just kind of like the industry forced me in a way. It was like, Hey, you're here. We like you. And then it's like the community's like, yeah, dude, but um, what's up with this gun? I'm like, I don't know. Um, I knew, I know it, but I can't, I don't have one of those. And so I would, Hey, can, can, can you, can I get that or I can show them that and to see that work go back and, and people actually start working and engaging and then to, um, to kind of be, I don't know, just, um, I, I would say, you know, humbly, I would say like a unique voice because what a lot of people do with their videography, I do with my, my speech. And that's my, that's my tool. Like a lot of people are very creative, man. Like, look, to be totally honest with you, I'm surprised that I've been given the grace and mercy this far. Because besides when I did something on TV or with uh, with somebody with a great production team, this just now coming up this weekend is the first time I've ever worked with a videographer on my own. Coming up like this weekend, the first time I've ever had one. And I got a photographer, too. And I got somebody helping me buy clothes. It's really weird. All right. <laughs> but I've never I've never had those kind of opportunities. I was just a dude that got out there and talked. So Mike, to really answer your question, um, that's how I got on. But then when I got in the industry, it was really a word of mouth and people were like you, like you were absolutely one of those people. Where I was like, Hey, I need some help. Um, I'm trying to do this, this thing. And you were like, all right. And your cool little suit and stuff, you know, you're like, all right, dude, what you need? All right. I'm going to send this over to you. And you did, you mean, you were a man of your word. Then you sent me some other stuff. And I was able to get those things out in the hands of people. And of course, I'm pretty sure Eagle, you know, got some sales. I got to educate people and it was, it was great, but you trusted me. And I don't, you didn't trust me because I had 500,000 followers. You trusted me because of our conversation and the way that we interacted and engaged. Um, And I think that's, that's the way. Now to your point about business though, um, I tell everybody, I call it um, beyond the trigger. You have to think beyond the trigger, right? So even when it came out to putting out uh, the truth handguns, Right. Like that was something that was to me very meaningful and powerful. Um, The first guns in history to fight gun control outside of actually shooting at people. Um, You know, the first guns in history to fight gun control. Where did that come from? That came from me pouring who I naturally am into uh, into a product that I naturally I love guns. So I poured both of them together and out comes this great gun called the truth. You you guys Google it. It's a long story, but trust me, you won't be disappointed. the truth is a, is an awesome thing. And I'm very proud of it. And I started telling people like, Hey, you got to think beyond this and you have to be smart. You just can't, you can't just say, Oh, I want to be an instructor and not understand marketing. You can't say that I want to um, work with companies and not understand return on investment. Right. You can't just say, I want to start selling product and not understand total cost opportunities. Like you have to understand all these different things. Um, so I decided at the same time, to your point, Mike, I was like, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a pro uh, event and I call it train and learn and train to learn. We were going to have this, the second annual one this year, but you know, this dude called COVID came and canceled everything. Uh, so we'll, we'll have it next year, but that three day event is literally built. And it's not just for black people, obviously it's for everybody, uh, but it's literally built to help individuals understand 
how to build their brand. So I invite guys like yourself. I invite guys, you know, uh, like the Rob Pincuses and uh, the, the Kevins, you know, the, the, the tech daddies of the world and other other people that are great at their niche and the thing of what they do. Like we had Curtis VSO channel out there last year. I mean, we had Sean, we like shooting. If I keep naming people, I'll start to get them. We had marketing reps of companies. We had, you know, TJ, the owner of uh, Tactical Sugar Hunting Ice Tea was out there and all these different things to learn and grow from each other. So it's like an industry professional development right? To really help you understand some of these nuances. And it was there that I had to educate people and tell them like, yeah, you might see me as a gun dude and you might love the things I say, but my master's degree is in procurement acquisition and contract management. So I'm trying to also help you understand that you can be here and build a business and pull from different people and understand how to do that productively. I do think that companies, you know, I would love to say that companies should hire more minorities. The only reason I can't stick to that, because I don't know how many people are applying for the jobs. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I do know that organizations, like not companies, not businesses, not, I sell the widget, organizations need to do a much better job of putting um, uh, minority people in general, uh, men, women, uh, Hispanic, black, whatever, they need to do a better job of putting them in position to be a voice and to be heard. Uh, the one thing that I always uh, thought was kind of a a missed point with a lot of orgs for a while was that the fact that they they talked about empowering all people, but they didn't even help give all people a voice. And so, like, if you're going to pay, if you already have a position on the payroll to pay, like, imagine the work that somebody could do if if you know that they're making a change, and I can humbly say, um, just from in personal interactions, not the internet, from personal interactions, I know I've changed ten to fifteen thousand people into gun owners. I know it. Period. Like I know that for a fact. Over over the, the twenty years I've been doing this, before I've ever started getting on camera, I know that to be a fact. So if I can do that and still at you know still hold down a regular nine to five. If it's all really about the Second Amendment, then why wouldn't you just pull me, pay me a salary, and let me go out there and do the work? If it's really because it'd be too easy. Like we're spending. Um, I saw that the NRA one point in time, and I, I might have the number, or somebody told me, or whatever it was, it was upwards of like two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars for entertainment at one of the conventions. Now look. I'm not saying people don't need to be entertained. All right. They absolutely do. It's part of them wanting to come and be a member and they love to see the rock star. So I totally get that. I'm not, I'm not against that. But what would happen if you wanted to expand the urban reach and you pay a dude or a girl to do nothing but speak on those issues and physically go into the areas and do the work and you paid them 80 grand a year. And that's all they did is they went and they recruited and spoke up and did the work. What kind of change could we really have? So other than that, I can only tell people to, to look at starting your own businesses. The problem is um, many individuals, um, I don't I don't know if they, outside of being an instructor, um, we do have, like, we got uh, 77 Solutions. Uh, he makes holsters. He's out there doing his thing. And we have a couple of other individuals that are now starting to open up FFLs and uh, different things of that nature. But we got to get people understanding there is a business side to it. So to be totally honest with you, I'm going to um, – say that I agree with you, and then I'm going to put you on the spot. So why don't you come and make sure you present on operating and growing businesses, Mike, and next year's <laughs> train and learn where we can get people to dang on information. No, I definitely will. And and I apologize for not making the, the last one because I was supposed to actually go, but then um, in a turn of events, I sold my company 
<laughs> that I that you know been with me yeah. forever, and I was just kind of taking that in because you know I got that big check and I'm off to do the WTTA thing. So I wanted to go back and be with my family because I was in New Jersey, but I will definitely be at the next one. And I think that these are discussions that we need to have in the industry. I've never been one to, I think I've been, I've, I've gone against the grain when it comes to calling these things out. Uh, there's only one person I think that could piss more people off is Rob Pincus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, absolutely. I will, I will be at the next one and I look forward to it. I, I would have been at this last one if we didn't have COVID, but you know, yeah. COVID clock and all the good stuff. So, you know, you talk, but you do, uh, you do bring up a very good point though. I, I, I'm done. Jake, I'm going to let you in here, but you bring up a good point. I am trying to encourage people to understand <clears throat> the business and even beyond getting into it, it's still about sustainability because one risk with the second amendment, um, these companies is I notice a lot of turnover, like a lot of turnover. So, you know, maybe fixing that too, where people aren't jumping ship so much. I don't know. It's complex. Go ahead, Jake. I'm sorry. I, while you're talking, I realized three themes. Um, when you, when you were answering Mike's question, one is that, you continually say yes to opportunities, and I think that's why you got to where you are. Um, I didn't hear you say, I didn't hear any hesitation. It was, I, I, yes, I'll do that. Yes, I'll do that. Um, mm-hmm. And sure, that's that's a passion of yours, and you want to pursue it, and that you know that may be the motivation. But beyond that, you inadvertently answered my first question about humility, and um, and I think the humility is that you see yourself as a conduit. You're, none of this stuff belongs to you. You're just passing it through to the people who need it. And that points to the third theme, which is educator. You, you see yourself as an educator. You don't see yourself as a celebrity or putting yourself first or doing it for you, uh, which dovetails into the conduit thing. You're just a pipe, you know, and, and all the stuff that flows through doesn't belong to the pipe. Um, so I think that's what, what makes you so attractive to that and your nice beard. But um, – <laughs> It makes you so attractive and so easy to follow is because it's not of you, right? It's it's flowing through you, and that's where the humility comes from. You're willing to do anything. You're you're willing to, in the humility, receive more information, allow yourself to change your mind, while also contributing that which you know. And you're super well-read, and you work really hard, and that, that all helps too. Um, but I, I just think I, I wanted to point out those three themes because I, I think it's worth knowing that um, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, man, I can never be like those guys. It's like, yes, you can. All you got to do is just do the simple things. Right. Like Mike always says, like we shouldn't have called it the, the group Walk the Talk America. We should have called it Walk Three Feet Over There <laughs> We're, and, and then do something. Right. And, and it's about doing it. Um, my good friend and mentor, Christian Conti, who works in the prisons in Pennsylvania, he says, uh, you know, his whole thing is meeting people where they are. He says, if I wanted to be an impact in, in dropping down, you know, driving down recidivism rates, I had to go where the problem was, and that's prisons. So he literally put himself in there. You want to go make an impact, you go to Utah. You know, you, you go to wherever you need to go, and you make it happen. And I think that's that's a, a really special quality that anybody can do um, if, you, if you're courageous, you know. So... Um, I, I do have to get to a class here. I'm, I'm actually taking a, I'm going into a pistol league tonight and I'm oh, okay. excited about cool. it. I've never done anything like that before. Um, so I got to shoot across town in a little bit, but Mike, Mike has to wrap up with his, uh, his favorite question. Yeah. So Mrs. Dixie, <laughs> how do you tend to your mental health? Cause you're a big mental health advocate. And I want to say one story before you answer that question really fast, Jake. 
Um, one of the coolest things ever was the first time that I'd actually spoken uh, to Kevin. We were on a show and he was one of the panelists on the show and I was one of the other ones. And I was going into it to bring the mental health aspect to it, which is not something that was a common thing that was talked about, um, especially on shows, unless it was blaming mental health for something. And Kevin started to go first. He started talking and you just unloaded like your story on the show. And it was the best thing ever because it was, it, it set me up so perfect to go on and start talking about the programs and the things that I do. Um, and so I, I've always appreciated you from day one, your honesty and the fact that you were brave enough to go on there and share those experiences. Because like you said earlier, those are the things that we kind of had the red elephant in the room, right? We didn't talk about suicide. We didn't talk about mental health, it made people feel uncomfortable, especially saying something like I wanted to kill myself, right? Like those things. But I want to know how you tend to your mental health now. Like, what do you do? So I have a, a thing saying, you know, where I, I tell people to, um, appreciate the small blessings in life. Right. So one thing, um, I do is I look around and I will constantly appreciate the small things, uh, because it, it brings you so much joy. I'll be totally honest with you. Sometimes it brings me to tears of joy. Uh, that's recent. Sometimes I look around and I'm like, dude, I got a, I got a nice flat screen on the wall. I got three cars outside. Hey, look at my daughter. I can hear her bouncing bullets. You know what I mean? Like the small things, because sometimes we can overlook. We're so focused on getting to the next thing. We don't take time to reflect on what we have and what we worked for. So sitting back and allowing yourself to say, yes, I've done this. Because if you don't know what you've achieved, you can't appreciate it. Right. So be able to say, yes, I've done this. Um, it could be something as simple as, oh, hey, I get to, you know, go to my favorite cigar bar this weekend, just knowing that you have the ability, you've worked hard enough to do it because, you know, the, the I like to say the devil will creep in and, and place camp in any empty land. So you have to keep your mind occupied with all the great things that you were doing, no matter how small, you know. Um, another thing is understanding your triggers and when you're getting close, not when you're there, but when you're getting close to it, maybe have had enough. Um, so, one thing um, that I did that I do now is that I will um, tell individuals that, you know, I'm not prepared to finish or continuously engage in this conversation because I can see that the conversation is not productive and I just don't want to be angry anymore. So it's kind of like, Hey, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not ready to have this conversation and I'll, I'll literally walk away from them. Um, even when it comes to social media, I have a two response and I'm done law. If I respond to you twice, and, and that's a maximum, two is a maximum, and we still aren't on the same page, I don't respond to you anymore because I'm, I'm just not going to allow those things to bring me down and ruin my day. Um, the other thing I like to do is um, sit back and reflect on some of the hobbies that I enjoy and reflect and understand what I've done to make me enjoy them before and how can I get them to the more. Like guns. Guns is a thing I love. I love tinkering with them and going out shooting them. But I also like um, nature. I don't know how to do barely anything in nature, but I just like being out there in it, right? It's just something about it. You know, I like going out there, uh, being in it, and, and doing things that take away all the pressure of the world sometimes. Um, and the one big thing I would, I, would, I would tell people to do is you know what, man, when you're sitting there sometimes and your mind is, you know, trying to go to those places that, you know, are, are not desired when your mind's trying to go there. Sometimes you just really need to recall where you've come from. And I mean that you need to recall where you come from, what that looks like, what you've made it through 
and remind yourself, like, no, that's not it. And I'm not going to allow myself to sink back there and then get up and go do something you enjoy doing. Uh, remind yourself that life is beautiful. So that's, those are the things that, um, that I do. And I also make sure that I enjoy my wife um, made me do something um, to, to make sure that, you know, I just, I'm, it's not even about, it's just not about being stressed. So she bought me one of those AMC movie cards where you get to go see like, I don't know, as many movies as you want a month. Um, she pay like 20 bucks a month or some crap like that. So I was like, well, there go the bootlegs. I was like, all right, we get this, um, you know, get this card and I'm going to, I guess I'm going to go to the movies. Um, but you know what? Here's, a, here's another honest thing for you. The reason why she had me starting to go to the movie so much is because of what I told her. Hey, I enjoy movies. I just do. I just never get a chance to go, look, I'm always doing something. And, and it's always, you know, to Jake's point, and, you know, it's really in, in help, help or service in one way or another of other people. Like I don't even spend my own money from my own company on myself. I give it to me. I buy me a gun here and there. Right. Especially if my buddies in the industry can give me a great deal. Right. But you know, really I'm just trying to help people or it goes for my family. It barely comes back to me. And she was like, no, you're going to go to the movies. And why is that? Because one thing that I did and I learned and Jake, you might have to sit me on the couch one day and really figure it out. But the one thing that I did is I will sit and watch a movie and I'll still do it now when my day's been stressful. And I still, to this day, watch TV, I guess probably more out of habit than anything. I watch a show while I'm falling asleep because my mind goes to that reality and I get to escape my own. Mm. So I never go to sleep heavy. I go to sleep in kind of a fantasy land, if you will, but I never go to sleep heavy and I can, I can like escape. And so that's why I like movies so much because I get to escape my reality and get into there. So as a kid, when I was really going through a lot of trauma, watching movies and things like that allowed me to be immersed in the character and not be immersed in all my pain and suffering. So find those small things that you like to do. So I can look over now and I don't know, it's like 400 DVDs sitting over there. That was before they stole my other ones. I had a much larger collection, but you know, between Netflix and Hulu, when I do sit down and get a chance, I'll watch a movie. I don't even play video games, dude. I don't. I got a PlayStation 4 sitting over there that's been cut on twice, and I'm totally behind a PlayStation 5. But you know why I'm going to have it? To say that I'm able to do it, and I've liked video games since I was a kid. So it ticks my 14-year-old son off that I got all these games, and I won't play them. But I like to sit it over there and look at it to remind myself of the fact that I was able to achieve uh, whatever I want. And if I want to get lost and immersed in a movie, cool. If I decide to put in a video game one day, cool, and kind of escape the reality that I'm known to be harsh, even though that's not my story today. I think it's more of a habit than anything. Um, and escape and appreciate, you know, the, the, the viewpoint of other people, even if it is just on TV. And love people around you. That'll be what I'll end with. Love people around you. Um, sometimes it brings me, well, no, honestly, a lot of times, but for some people it might be periodically. My biggest joy comes from making others happy. Um, my, my biggest thing about my family is looking at the fact that my wife and my two kids really don't have a care in the world. Right? We got struggles like everybody else, but my kids aren't, they're, they're great. They're, they're like typical. I was a dude that grew up in the mud and my kids are like the typical suburban children. My, my, my son walked in the house last week and was like, Hey dad, you will never believe what I saw today. And like this big, like white girl with pumpkin spice Starbucks in her hand, look on his face. And I'm like, you are really, you are really a suburban kid, man. But I can appreciate that because he doesn't have to go through what I went through. So 
but love other people, you know, be polite to people, see them, open the door for people because sometimes servicing others will bring you joy. It doesn't matter if they say nice things and if they're polite or not, but just being a good person will bring you joy and watch your triggers, man. If you're around venomous people, get away from them. If you're around people that you know like to argue and be venomous, get away from them and stop, start unfollowing some of those pages that encourage you to be angry. Unfollow them, right? Block people that come in and, and want to argue with you all the time. Now, you know, just block them, you know, do those different things. Like, but get away from venom. Uh, stop being addicted to misery because many of us are and find happiness, solace, and appreciation for the things that you have there. Okay. Those things. Good. <laughs> I'm going to be late to my first ever pistol league, but that's okay. okay. Right. Totally no. worth it. Uh, you know, uh, big ups to our, uh, our sponsor arms Corps for making this all possible. We're, uh, we're spreading love. We're spreading information. We're spreading healing and camaraderie and togetherness. And I really appreciate, we, we appreciate Arms Corps. Thank you, Kevin, for making the time. It's been a, a blessing in my life. Um, I, you know, I look up to you. You know, you've got a lot of people looking up to you. Keep doing what you're doing, man. You're, you're making a difference. And I think that's, that's really special. No, I'm humbled by that, man. Thank you very much. And you guys have been nothing but a blessing and nothing but a help. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't do this stuff if, I mean, one for, for guys like you, literally, with your support, you know, allowing me to share my voice, you know, Mike sending crates of stuff over to me. Mike, I didn't even ask you for half that stuff, but, you know, it's cool. <laughs> well, I love you, Kevin. You know that. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. Jake, go go learn to be a better shooter. You're going to already outshoot me, so that's good. <laughs> Not hard to do. Uh, thanks, uh, everybody, for listening. We'll uh, catch you next time. As always, we wish you great mental illness. Bye.